Okay. Boy, is it hot in here or what? <laughs> well, in the book, The Scarlet Fields, the combat memoirs of a World War I Medal of Honor hero, John Barclay gives vivid descriptions of being billeted in French uh, villages, and the only young men he sees are minus a limb or were blind. And there are places around the world today where it's kind of like that as well because of the um, women and men and children who are maimed by landmines and even in places in Africa where uh, there are villages where the men have lost limbs because of insurgents coming into their villages and, and chopping off limbs to stop people doing reprisal attacks. And those things are crimes against humanity. And Jesus is not saying in his teaching about adultery and sexual desire that we had read today that the kingdom of God should be like those places. That the kingdom of God should be populated with people who have inflicted such heinous wounds and mutilations on themselves. Jesus is using hyperbole. Uh, the very over-the-top graphic language of amputation to call his disciples to have an unadulterated passion in a sex-saturated society. And the way to achieve that is not a literal self-maiming, but a ruthless moral self-denial, a radical self-discipline. And Jesus' teachings here seem to be counter to the prevailing attitudes in the world today set on the fulfillment of any and all sexual desires to the detriment of marriage, but also radically resonate, resonates with the desire of women and men to be treated with dignity and affirmed for who they are rather than being objectified. It resounds with the Me Too movement and the Time's Up movements for treating other people with respect and honour. In fact, biblical, John, biblical scholar John Stott says there isn't a generation or a time when Jesus' teaching has been more relevant than now. We're embarking on a year-long exploration of Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of heaven in Matthew's Gospel, starting with the Sermon on the Mount. And we come to the Scriptures to get a fresh 2020 vision of what it means to be God's kingdom, in God's kingdom by grace, and live as ambassadors of that kingdom in the place and time in which we live. And if you were here last week, you'd be aware that we've kind of skipped ahead of things. And the reason for that is on February the 23rd, we're having a special service. We were going to be welcoming newcomers to Whangarei and specifically international students to North Tech. So I've swapped what I was planning on saying that week for this week, because it's probably better in that service to talk about being salt and light, not sex and lust. <laughs> but we shouldn't be surprised that the kingdom of heaven speaks to the most basic of human relationships, that between men and women. And as I was working on today's message, I have to say I thought it's rather strange to be doing a sex talk for seniors. But when we put it in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, its importance becomes clear. 
Jesus started this section of his sermon talking of coming not to do away with the law of Moses, but to fulfill it. He then takes a series of those laws and talks about them not simply being a call to outward compliance. This is not a OSH health and safety compliance regime. It wasn't about modifying and limiting our behaviour. He calls for a radical transformation of the inner self. In Ezekiel 36, 26, the prophet looks to the coming of the kingdom and speaks of a time when God would put a new heart and a new spirit within us. That outward behavior and relationships between people would be governed uh, by a regenerated heart and a transformed life. And here Jesus is teaching his disciples what that looks like. We are to be people of integrity, people of love, even for our enemies. People who seek other people's goods, even when they have done evil to us. People who are faithful to our word and in our relationships. And he applies that to the relationships between men and women, and specifically to marriage. So let's have a look at what he says. He quotes the seventh commandment. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. In scripture, sexual relationships in marriage are honored and respected as beautiful and sacred. In the Genesis creation story, we see that God created human beings, male and female, and the purpose for marriage is that a man and, a man and woman will leave their existing family networks, become one, and form their own family unit. That the two will become one flesh. God's ideal for sexual relationships is within the confines of a loving, mutual, committed relationship between a man and a woman. Okay? And it's, that's a radical thing to say and believe in today's society. But that is the scriptural understanding. And it's important to point out that it means mutual and loving. You know, God's plan for marriage is not abusive or domination. It's mutuality. And uh, it's, it's the leaves and cleaves language that some of us will know from the use of that Genesis passage at our weddings. It's a, and it's a relationship that needs protect, the protection of the law like the seventh commandment and the tenth commandment about coveting a neighbor's wife. And it's a relationship that calls for a radical, exclusive commitment from each partner to each other. And it's such a precious and wonderful covenant relationship that God uses it in the Old Testament to talk of his relationship with Israel as his bride. And in Hosea in particular and in other, others, adultery is used to speak of Israel's going after other gods. And it brings home the enormity and the pain and the sense of betrayal that such action brings to the heart of God. And the New Testament, that motif is carried over to speak of Jesus, the bridegroom, and us, the church, as his bride. This lifelong commitment to one another, a giving of oneself to them, is a reflection of God's love for us. And the Bible and God seem to have got the rap for being anti-sex, but that's not the case. Let's face it. God came up with the idea. Praise God. 
The Bible also shows clear understanding of God's ideal for the use of that gift. You know, and it also give us, gives us so many examples of humanity's struggles and failures to uphold those ideals. The passage that we had read from the Old Testament is a psalm we know which comes from David's own failings with adultery. And many Christians are surprised that the Song of Songs is in the Bible because it is, it is a, uh, it's a book of raunchy, ancient, Near Eastern erotic love poetry. It is the celebration of the love and sexual desire between a bride and a groom. Very often people will try and sort of spiritualise it and, and, and use it as a sort of metaphor for talking about us and God, and that's great, but that's what it is. Now, some of the metaphors haven't stood the test of time. Chris probably wouldn't find it romantic if I said to her, I'm not going to make you stand up, Chris. You know. <laughs> That she has a neck like a strong ivory tower that shields can hang off. <laughs> or that her nose is like the Tower of Lebanon pointing towards Damascus. <laughs> that her hair was like a flock of goats descending from, descending from Mount Gilead. <laughs> you know? But it celebrates the passion of a wife and a husband that they have for each other. It's a great celebration of that. And then Jesus goes on to say, But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Just like we'll see when we look at murder and anger, Jesus changes the underlying, challenges the underlying attitudes in our hearts. The Pharisees and scribes were happy with the law as a prohibition against outward action. They were happy with what was the limit but Jesus wants to deal with what's in the heart, how we treat other people, treating other people as objects of sexual desire in inappropriate ways. And Jesus is not wanting to quibble about how far is too far, what constitutes uh, adultery, what constitutes inappropriate sexual relationships, what's the tipping point. Jesus is not wanting to get down to, well, it depends what the definition of is is, that we heard from ben, uh, Bill Clinton in answer to questions about having sexual relationships with Monica Lewinsky. Jesus is saying, don't go there in the first place. In the kingdom of God, we treat people with respect and honour. We don't objectify them. We don't allow lust to take root. We treat each other first and foremost as brothers and sisters in Christ, as fellow objects of God's love and God's grace, not simply from sexual desire. Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it like this, our bond to Jesus Christ permits no desire without love. That committed covenant love that reflects Christ's love for us. And once again, it does not mean that we are to be a passionless people, but we are to have an unadulterated passion. And it does kind of depend on what the meaning of is is, uh, when, when, uh, because we need to re wrestle with what Jesus means by the word look. As Matt Woodley puts it, Jesus isn't talking about an, an appreciative glance at a, a feminine beauty or masculine uh, attractiveness. You know, since lust is an equal opportunity sin, rather it has the sense of staring. It has the sense 
of wanting to possess. Let's face it, we are designed to be attracted to each other. But look, it look has the idea of leering, objectifying that person and allowing sexual fantasy to take root in our hearts. It's like possessing the other person. Like inappropriate anger leads to damaging behaviours and murder, the process is the same here. And Martin Luther sums it up like this. If we're not careful, the heart goes where the eyes, so that lust and desire are added, which ought to have been for my wife or husband alone. So if your eye, and this is again Jesus talking, even your good eye causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Boy. Firstly, I think it's helpful to see what Jesus isn't saying. Obviously, Jesus isn't talking about amputation and blinding as the way in which people should deal with the issue of false sexual desire. That's definitely not the sort of cleave that Genesis has in mind. The right eye and the right hand were seen to have to do with power in the Old Testament because the majority of people were right-handed. So it's a way of saying, don't let these things have dominance over you. Matthew 18, Jesus applies this to all types of temptation, not just lust and sexual temptation. And he uh, extends it to uh, talk about even cutting off your legs. And uh, if, if that was what Jesus literally meant, it would probably leave us as people in the kingdom of God without a leg to stand on. Yeah, you saw that one coming. Got to work on my comic timing. <laughs> He's also not talking of the imposition of strict rules and restrictions on women mainly, like with the Islamic fundamentalists' burqa or veil or the Victorian dress coats. But there have been times, lots of times in church history where that has also been the way in which to deal with sexual desire was to blame the woman. In Genesis, Adam's response to God in the garden was that the woman made me do it, right? And, uh, you know, we're still using that, that blame of the other for our failings. And that's one of the things that drives relationships apart. We see it in today in that a lame excuse of women's dress and behaviour being seen as a reason for unwanted sexual advances and even rape. The woman made me do it. And I love this cartoon on the screen because behind me, because I think it picks some, up something of that problem. Whatever is or isn't on the outside, it covers up where the main problem lies, in people's hearts and minds. And Jesus' approach is that it calls for self-discipline, that the follower of Jesus should work on their own hearts and attitudes, that it is a matter of self-responsibility. It's a changing of one's hearts. It's like this, Jesus says, if you are tempted, don't look. King David in the great, is a great negative example here. Bathsheba was bathing on the roof. But Jesus' advice would be, don't look, don't linger, don't let that sexual desire grow. You've got to remember that David and Bathsheba was also about power, you know, the right hand and the right eye. Um, Bathsheba was, you know, we, th these days we talk about a, a Harvey Weinstein moment. 
You know, we would. That is a Harvey Weinstein moment. In the book of Job, when his friends come and supposedly comfort him by saying, you must have done something really wrong for all this calamity to befall you, Job defends himself by saying, he has even made a vow not to look on women who are not his wife in a lustful manner or to harbour such thoughts in his head, his, his heart. You know, he's actually made that vow. He's been about self-discipline. And uh, so, you know, don't let your eyes be, uh, draw you in. Don't look. Don't do certain things. Don't go certain places. It's not repression of sexual urges, uh, but in actual fact, it's... Uh, now, you know, it's not... But openly acknowledging them and choosing to favour a different vision and work at self-discipline. Train your eye and your mind. And I think this wonderful image behind me, which I heard you all chuckling at, uh, does a good job of summing up Jesus' teaching. The time to deal with lust is not when you're out of control and crashing. It's too late then. Rather, it's when we are initially distracted. Keep your eyes on the way, says Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27, Paul uses a metaphor for the Christian life that will fill our newspapers and our TV screens this year from Tokyo. He uses a, a, a metaphor from the Olympics. He says that he is prepared to discipline his mind and behavior like an athlete so he can run in such a way as to win the prize. And that is his metaphor for Christian discipleship. An athlete will forego the temptations of sleep-ins, fast food. They will discipline themselves to win a prize. And Paul says he chooses to live his life in that way that reflects the prize of knowing and being known by Christ. The underlying motivation. That's the underlying motivation. And, you know, both these things are... Yeah, okay. Uh, and so if you want some disciplines that will help, if you want some training tips, uh, the first is very simple. If you're married, invest in your marriage. Okay? Uh, John and Angus Sturt are amongst the most res were amongst the most uh, respected marriage counsellors in New Zealand and I had an opportunity of taking services where John Sturt was there later in life and he's just an amazing man of wisdom. And the metaphor that he used for, uh, for marriage is that marriage is work. And the only better metaphor they knew for marriage was that marriage is hard work. <laughs> but I can't think of a greater and more wonderful work than investing in loving another person. And, being, and, and receiving their love in return. Amen. And I tell people that at, uh, at weddings when I take it. And I tell them that the romance does not stop here because they tend to want a wonderful romantic wedding and that's the end of it. But I normally look at the guys and say, guys, the romance does not finish here. You can't just sit down in front of the TV and watch sports all day long and expect your, your, your dinner to be, uh, to be made. You've got to work at your marriage. That's the number one tip. You know, when was the last time that you said to your spouse, wow, you're beautiful or handsome? 
You know, I, I need to speak to myself here too, don't I, Chris? <laughs> you, your nose is like... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> One time with Chris, I, I was preaching on Psalm 119, which is the sort of, you know, it's an alphabet, goes to the, the uh, Hebrew alphabet, and I made a stand up in, in church and I sang, A, you're adorable, B, you're so beautiful, C, you're a real cutie pie. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> when was the last time you had a date night? We actually said, let's just spend some time together doing something that is investing in our relationship. I know you get to a certain stage in life where you just have this wonderful companionship, you know, and it's great. But like Chris and I have done the marriage course after 20 years and after 30 years of being married, and after 30 years of being married, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, we actually do love each other. We are passionate about each other. So let's do things like have a date night, do things that we enjoy doing together. Okay, that's, that's the number one tip. Right, okay. That, I went off my script there, so I'm sorry about that. But that's good. That's good advice. Right. The other thing is that if you wrestle with lustful thoughts, and, you know, I'm a guy, we do, confession and forgiveness are a positive way to disciple yourself. You know, to an actual fact, acknowledge those things and get them sorted out. Men also, uh, in particular, are not very good at having uh, the depth of companionship with each other where they are able to be open to speak about such things and to be able to help one another. In New Zealand, New Zealand blokes have mates. They don't have friends that they talk at a a, a deep level with. But... um, I think that's a real positive thing to, to develop a relationship with someone you trust to be able to, you know, not that's not the first thing you, you, you talk about, but you've got someone that you can have accountability and prayer with. Um, to share, you know, with your hope for a, a healthy spiritual life and uh, a relational health. And, you know, that's what we're discovering in terms of mental health these days that for women and, and men in particular, they actually got to start talking. Actually, you've got to start being real. And that's part of that discipleship. Because we tend to want to hide the stuff because we feel shame and guilt. Yet we have a God who offers grace and forgiveness, who creates in us a clean heart, who doesn't toss David onto the rubbish heap. You know? And a God who will lead us into all truth. The other thing is that if this is a big issue for you and you are being tempted or find yourself in a a relationship that is drawing you away from your marriage, seek professional counselling. Okay? Seek professional counselling. It's interesting that Jesus' reference to hell here may feel like an attempt to manipulate and control people with fear, like Jesus is a uh, hellfire and brimstone preacher. Because uh, Jesus is saying it's better to lose an eye and a hand rather than to end up in the fires of hell. But first, remember that word for hell here comes from Gehenna, which is the rubbish dump outside Jerusalem. And Jesus is saying that he doesn't want to end us to end up throwing away good marriages and good relationships and a community where people, men and women, are treated with respect and valued as whole people. 
And, you know, so many lives are thrown on the rubbish dump, so many marriages thrown on the rubbish dump, so many people find it's kind of a hell on earth, you know, kids and things that are affected by that sort of thing. The kingdom of God is a place where men and women are valued equally and right relationships are to be maintained. Where both marriages are supported and encouraged and valued and single people are honoured as well. Not just with that Pentecostal, God has a partner for you, you know, but in actual fact acknowledged and valued as individuals who are cared for um, and find their needs for being loved and accepted, met in community. And to achieve that, we are to have a, a right and a high attitude of sex and sexual desires and thoughts and actions. And N.T. Wright sums up his commentary on this passage by saying that it's like a rose bush, that in order to be a plant that produces a beautiful and strong flower, other buds need to be pruned and cut away to achieve a greater good. Let's pray. Loving God, I want to thank you very much for your grace and your love and your reconciliation. Thank you very much that you want us to be a people who love one another with an unadulterated passion, who honour and respect one another, who treat one another with dignity, as objects of your love and your grace. Lord God, I pray for marriages. I pray for marriages that they would be strong, that you would give men and women uh, the great, uh, just the desire to work at uh, caring for one another and loving one another. And Lord, as a church, we confess that there have been times when we have allowed our hearts and our minds and our actions to be turned in the wrong direction when it comes to sex and sexuality and the treatment of women and men. And Father God, we pray that you would forgive us. We pray that you would create a new heart within us. We pray that you would cleanse us and make us into people of your kingdom who look and see with the eyes of Jesus Christ. Amen.